Good morning. It's nice to see you all here this morning. The weather's a little bit better than it was last week. We uh, noticed this morning we had like an actual whole week of winter so far, which kind of is surprising for Fallon after some of the places we've lived. My wife's from Canada, so she kind of snickers at our Fallon winters <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> Open in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Exodus chapter 1. That's page 45 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And we're going to finish out the chapter today. And uh, while you're turning there, why don't I go ahead and pray for us and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you have communicated to us in uh, a very clear way. And it's right there before us. It's not just in um, some dreams or ideas or uh, the best that we can come up with in conversation with one another or uh, we don't have to read signs and portents or whatever. You've told us in your word true things about you and about us. And so we give you glory and praise that we get to meet together. And uh, as we come together this morning to open your word and sit at your feet and listen to you teach us, I pray that you would uh, be honored in this time. I pray that you by your spirit would speak through your word and through me to teach us that we would uh, grow in our faith, that we would grow in our understanding of you, what it means to walk as a Christian, what it means to be redeemed as a Christian. So, Lord, we uh, give you praise and glory. Help us to set aside things that would distract. Help us to focus on what you have for us now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're in Exodus chapter 1. Like I said, we're going to finish out the chapter today. That's page 45 in that uh, pew Bible in front of you. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can just take that one, and that one can be yours, and uh, take it with you and, and uh, read it to death till the cover falls off and buy a new one. So uh, many of you have uh, gone to college, and you've experienced the uh, dorm life and, and uh, kind of the things you learn in college and the things you think you already know because all of a sudden you're a college student. And I remember uh, very clearly all of the wisdom that poured forth from from me and my freshman friends when we were uh, new students at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And, and we would talk about things like marriage and how marriage should be done. A bunch of single guys who are 18 years old <laughs> living together in a, in a dorm room talking about how we were going to do marriage, what's the best way and the most biblical way and whatnot. And and I don't remember anything we said because it wasn't worth remembering. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't worth remembering. But after after uh, more than 21 years of marriage, I, I, I might be able to say something to those 18-year-old boys or to myself back then. But alas, I can't, can't quite do that. So I'm going to say it to you guys. Actually, we're not talking about marriage today. But there, there was another topic. My freshman year, I remember uh, at Moody Bible Institute, we had this class called Christian Life and Ethics. And it was a, uh, it was a basic theology class. It was kind of an introduction to the Christian life and Christian ethics. And uh, here we were again, a bunch of freshmen. And uh, our professor was leading us through, trying to help us th- think through these different things. And, and we talked about this issue of, uh, like an, like an idea of situational ethics is what we were kind of talking about. And, and is it ever right to, kind of raise one commandment over another commandment like maybe what if they come in conflict is that possible or or how do you work that together what's the christian way what's the biblical way what would jesus do in that situation and and so uh we we very confidently i was on the side that very confidently assumed that you know what there's there's never a situation where uh where you might for example be um where it might be the best thing to lie 
And I was very confident of that and made, and, uh, made that statement very strongly. No, there's, God always provides a way out, right? And there's, there's a way to, there's, there's a way where you never have to speak untruth or you never have to le- let someone believe things that are not true or lead someone to believe things that are not true. And God will always show a way that you can, that you can be consistent, uh, regardless of the situation in that regard. So that was my Christian life and ethics class. Well, then I had another class. It wasn't that year, but it was a little bit later with uh, Dr. Sauer, who's one of my most respected uh, professors. He was kind of my pastor for the couple of years I had him. He was, uh, he was a, Greek, a professor of Greek, and he taught uh, other New Testament books and whatnot. Great man. He had been a Marine Corps officer in Vietnam. And uh, so we were talking about the same issue with him. And he had a very different take than those 18-year-old boys in the, uh, in the Christian Life and Ethics course. He said, you know what? If you have the opportunity to deceive your enemy, you do. Absolutely. And, uh, and he left it unsaid, but being a Marine Corps officer, he was thinking you deceive them to lead them into a place where you can kill them, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but he was talking about wartime, you know, and, and he was talking about situations like that where, no, if you have the opportunity to deceive your enemy, you do it. You're not going to broadcast your movements. You're not going to broadcast your positions. You're not going to put it up on the Internet so that they can track you with GPS and whatnot, right? You deceive your enemies. And, and so, you know, what was I to do? Here, you know, Dr. Sauer knew a thing or two about stuff like that, and my, my Bible professor teaching the Christian life and ethics class knew a thing or two about that also. And so uh, what was I left to do? Well, we're going to address today uh, that topic exactly, and we're going to talk about these midwives and we're going to see what they do and the choices they make. And then we're going to look and see what God's response is to those choices. So, again, we're in Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to be working our way through here, uh, through verses 8 through the end of the chapter. And I'll start off here with, uh, with verse 8. Right? If you remember from, from last week, um, in verse 7 particularly, talked about how the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, had multiplied greatly. Right, they they were spreading like crazy, and they were filling the land, and it was very noteworthy. And God used all kinds of descriptors to talk about just exactly how much they were multiplying, and it was miraculous. It wasn't just like they were having lots of kids; like it was it was powerful, it was miraculous the way they were spreading, so that the land was filled with them. As he closes with verse seven, verse eight says, "Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph." And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so we see that Pharaoh had a couple of problems as he looked at this situation. Obviously, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. He's the the leader of the land. He's the one in charge of what's going on there. And he looked at this multiplication of, of Hebrews, of Israelites, and he thought, man, this is going to be a problem. And, uh, and the first problem that he saw, first of all, was just that there were too many Hebrews, right? He said, what if they, what if they uh, multiply and become too many and mighty for us, right? Come, let us deal shrewdly, lest they multiply, right? So the too many of them, right? Uh, that, that's, that's a problem in and of itself. He didn't, he didn't want to become outnumbered by by these uh, foreigners who were living in the land. He didn't want them to, to outnumber the Egyptians. Now, we don't have any indication that, uh, that the Israelites ever did actually join a foreign army or grow so numerous that they decided to flip the tables and kind of take over the land or anything like that. We don't see anything like that from history, but that, that was his fear, or at least that was what he stated as his fear. 
And many commentators believe actually this was a fear tactic that Pharaoh was using. He was, he was trying to whip the people up into a frenzy of fear so that they would hate the Hebrews and they would be willing to go along with whatever Pharaoh decided to do and, uh, and, and do to these Hebrews, to these, these uh, Israelites who were in the land. So he, he was trying to create enough fear amongst the populace that he could then enact his own agenda and there'd be no squabble about it. No one would turn against him. No one would, would give him a problem about it at all. And so uh, it seems like it was kind of a fear tactic. He wasn't actually afraid of them. He just wanted to oppress them. He wanted to make use of them uh, for his own ends. And of course, fear tactics are used by politicians nowadays. You might have heard one or two mentions of that in the last six months or 12 months or 18 months. We need to be wise and we need to think clearly and not be led by those who would just make us be afraid of something and then and then go along with what they want to pass, what they want to do, what they want to uh, to bring bring about as a result of this situation of this fear that they've created. But what's happening is they're playing on emotions, right? They're playing on your emotions and, and causing you to be led by your emotions. And by the way, there there are it's, this it doesn't only happen in politics. This happens in theology too. That uh, the people who would teach us the Bible and you can go to. Uh, you know, look online or go to a Christian bookstore and you can see lots of different books where, where the instruction is coming not from here. They'll use some words from here, but the instruction is coming from more of an emotional bent that they are, they are trying to come from a place of emotion and argue to a place of, place of emotion in you using a couple of biblical words to bring about a certain change or whatever in your life. And so you can see sort of fear tactics and emotional leading and whatnot, uh, all over in our world. And so uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh wasn't a fool, though. He was arguing against there being too many Hebrews, but he wasn't a fool. He didn't want them to. He didn't want to kill them all entirely because they were his workforce, right? They were his his uh, his slave workforce, and uh, so he didn't want to get rid of them entirely because then they'd have to do the work, and that doesn't work out, right? He had these people who would do it for cheap or for free, and so he um, he had a second problem. Not just that there were so many of them, because he could have solved that by just killing all of them. That's not what he chose to do. He, uh, he had a second problem, and the second problem was that they might escape. He didn't want there to be too many, but he didn't want them to leave either, because they were the workforce. And so he says there, at the conclusion of verse 10 there, lest they uh, join our enemies, fight against us, and escape. We don't want them to leave. <laughs> we want them to be here, because we need someone to do the backbreaking labor that we really don't want to do. And uh, so that was his second problem. And uh, he didn't want them to escape, didn't want them to ally with an invading army and then, and then be able to get away or whatever. And so he wanted them to remain in a manageable number, but he also wanted them to remain in the land and continue to working. And so uh, one commentator uh, kind of helps us understand Pharaoh's position in, uh, in contrast to God's will. Okay, you got Pharaoh's issue versus God's will. And I quote, Pharaoh's two concerns as an administrator that they were too numerous and might leave the country, set him in direct opposition to God's two promises to Jacob. What were those two promises? That a company of nations would come from him, numerous, and that God would give them the land of Canaan. This sets the stage for the battle between the God of creation, who said, be fruitful and multiply, and of history, because he also said, I will give you the land, confrontation between that God and the great and powerful Pharaoh. And so you're going to have a major world-class battle being set up because Pharaoh is stepping directly against God's desires for the people of Israel. 
So uh, Pharaoh complains about uh, these two problems, but, uh, but his problem really is that he's setting himself against God. He's going directly against God's will. And so he comes up with a couple of plans here. We have plan A, right? He comes up with plan A to solve this problem. Remember, he doesn't want to kill them all. He doesn't want them to be too numerous, but he also doesn't want them to leave the land. They need to be manageable. And so his plan A is he's going to increase uh, their forced labor. Uh, Verses 11 through 14 read like this. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They were inflicted with backbreaking, hard, difficult, exhausting labor that would keep them busy all hours of the day and into the night, would make them too tired for family. To have any time for family, they were trying to keep them from multiplying this way. And and he goes to great lengths to talk about how heavy this affliction was, how hard the work was. Look, he says they were afflicted with heavy burdens. He says they were oppressed. They were, twice he says, they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves. Ruthlessly made to work as slaves. Bad news. Their lives were made bitter with hard service. They worked with brick and mortar and out in the fields and whatever heavy, hard, difficult, exhausting, painful kind of labor they could make them do, that's what they got to do. So the purpose behind the backbreaking labor, of course, was that they be able to limit the, the, the explosion of the population among the Hebrews. He was trying to make them so tired that they couldn't have more children. He was trying to limit them that way. But we see the result in verse 12. Look at uh, the beginning of verse 12 there. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So the result is that the people multiplied and they spread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Pharaoh was trying to keep the men in the fields all day and all night, too tired to be anywhere near their wives and have more children. But the people continued to multiply, even in the face of that kind of hardship and uh, deliberate sabotage of their family. They continued to multiply. And they did so so much that uh, the people grew more and more afraid of the Hebrews. Pharaoh's uh, propaganda had already, you know, tried to paint the Hebrews in a very bad light. And, oh, they're a scary people because they're growing, they're multiplying, they're going to be too much. And, oh, look at what they're going to do. And now all of a sudden they're growing, they're multiplying even more. So the people are more and more scared. And so we have a real problem. Plan A backfires miserably, right? And so it's time for plan B. So he moves on, verse 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. And when they, uh, he said to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And so that's his plan is that plan B is to Uh, for the midwives to execute the boys. The midwives are going to execute the boys. Pharaoh failed at controlling the conception of Hebrew children, so he's going to control the birth of Hebrew children. And of course, that, that rings true today. We hear that and see that, and we live in a culture that does that. We live in a world that does that.
and uh, they would control either the conception, and if that doesn't work out, they will certainly control the birth of babies. Now, I think it's interesting he gave this instruction to the midwives because we we uh, used a midwife with our with our younger two, our youngest two children, Eva Claire and Brennan, and uh, our midwife is about four foot nothing, and uh, but I dare you to ask her to kill a child. Yeah. <laughs> you'll have a fight on your hands, right? That's what, Midwives give their lives to the birth of babies. They give their lives for that. And so, uh, well, Pharaoh's not exactly going to have a fight on his hands per se, but uh, there certainly is resistance. The midwives decide to mutiny. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So there's a mutiny on the part of the midwives. They, they, they don't you know, go in open rebellion. They're a bunch of midwives. What are they going to do, right? They just don't obey the order. And they keep delivering babies. And the babies are healthy. And uh, they, they preserve life like they are supposed to do rather than take life like Pharaoh would have them do. Right? They stand up to the evil of Pharaoh in their own way. They just disregard his orders. Now, imagine yourself. You can either be Shifra or Pua, your call. Imagine yourself one of them. You're a midwife. And you're going to disobey a direct order from the most powerful man on earth, most likely. That takes courage. And I think that's neat. I think that's powerful. And I also think that's why we know their names. What's Pharaoh's name, by the way? Anybody know? Zero people on earth know who this Pharaoh was. Nobody knows. Scholars are like, well, it could be this guy, it could be that guy. We don't know, right? We don't have his name. He's the most powerful man on earth. We don't know who he is. Who are the two midwives? Shifra and Pua. Because they had courage to stand up to him. And I think that's exactly why the author puts their names in here. Now, there were probably more of them. They were maybe representative of the guild or maybe they were just the two or, or I don't, I don't, doesn't really matter. Probably two women couldn't do the midwifing for all of these, you know, thousands and thousands of babies that were being born, of course. But their names are remembered. God honors them in scripture. And we don't know who this Pharaoh is. By the way, we're going to see that later on. Pharaoh's going to start hearing about the Lord and he's going to say, I don't know who this Lord is, right? But uh, And he d- doesn't let the people leave. I-, I don't know who the Lord is. I don't know the Lord. By the end, everybody knows the Lord because he has shown himself again and again and again and again in delivering the people of Israel. And who's the Pharaoh? No idea. There's irony in there. I love it. And so we see their mutiny, right? Well, and we see the first, uh, the first result is the multiplication of the people, right? Again, so the plan A resulted in the multiplication of the people. Plan B here results in the multiplication of the people. Look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Again, Pharaoh's plan failed miserably because the people multiplied, grew very strong. I love it. His plan, not only does it fail, but it backfires and results in in uh, greater births and more multiplication and the people everywhere. You're getting the idea that the people are spreading everywhere? That's kind of the, the theme here, regardless of what he does. And look at the second result there. 
the beginning of verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. God dealt well with the midwives. He blessed them. Not only did he bless the entire nation, and the entire nation grew and multiplied, and they were spreading everywhere. Not only that, but he blessed these midwives and dealt well with them. Because the midwives feared God, he goes on, he gave them families. That's how he blessed them. These women didn't fear Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. They feared God instead. And so they acted accordingly. And God rewarded them for their behavior by giving them families. Now, two huge things that I want us to think about in in this section right here. The first thing I want us to think about is the, the midwives' response to Pharaoh in the interrogation. Why are you guys doing this? And look at their response. They say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. By the way, I think that's a dig. I think they're saying, you, you, you know, the wimpy Egyptian women, you know, like it takes them all, you know. But our women are strong and they are fit and they are having babies so fast that uh, they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So along with, I think, the slight insult to the Egyptian women there, uh, they are also saying, sorry, they just have the babies too fast and we can't make it in time. Now, I'm sure these Hebrew women were strong and I'm sure... They, they were fit. They worked very hard. Their lives consisted of manual labor and, and very difficult environment. And what They were strong. They didn't sit around all the time and, you know, eat bonbons and get fat, right? They, they were strong. They were fit. They worked hard. Their life was difficult. Given birth was just another of the difficult things that they did on that Tuesday. <laughs> and uh, so it's possible, it's possible that some of them delivered before the midwife gets there. I understand that that happens sometimes, even even in Fallon, <laughs> especially if your midwife's coming from Reno and my wife's very fit. And so if you've not heard that story, ask me later. I probably shouldn't tell the whole thing right here, but it involves a chip clip. I will say that. Okay. <laughs> I checked first to see if Steph's in the room. She's not. <laughs> so that happens sometimes. I can, I can attest to that, but it didn't happen every time. No way. These midwives lied to Pharaoh, lied through their teeth to Pharaoh, asked a direct question, and they answered it with a direct lie. It was mixed with some truth, because I'm sure sometimes that happened, but it was a lie. What do you think about that? How do you, how do you reconcile that in your own mind? Because, okay, I, I could get it if, if this next verse didn't exist. If verse 20 didn't exist, I could get it. Okay, they did this thing. Can we all agree they did a good thing by protecting these boys? Absolutely. We would all do the same thing, right? Absolutely. That we would protect those boys at the cost of our own life. Absolutely. And then would we lie about it? But then you have God's response. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. They had not only saved the boys, but they lied through their teeth to Pharaoh about it. So God dealt well. Look at that. Verse 20 comes after verse 19 in most Bibles. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew, they tell this lie. At the end of the lie, verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and he gave them families. How do we think about that? How do we think about that? 
And so I, I was asking questions around the office. Everybody kind of got polled around the office this week just so I could know what to say in the sermon, right? <laughs> I asked them, what, you know, did, did the midwives do the right thing? Of course, everybody, everybody thinks the midwives do the right thing. Okay, did they do the right thing by lying to Pharaoh? Uh, it's hard to think about in our classroom, in our, in our uh, you know, Christian Ethics 101 classroom. That's hard to think about. In real life, if you're in that situation, would you have lied to Pharaoh? Yes, I would have. I'd lie through my teeth to him. You bet. Now, I'm not a very good Christian, so I'm not holding myself up as the standard, but I don't think that's the aspect in which I'm not a very good Christian. Well, think about what was going on here. Okay? You had an order from the government to put to death male babies who are Hebrew. Of course you're not going to obey that order. No Christian, no, no upstanding person, not even a Christian, would obey that order. Of course, you're going to disobey that order. All right. So here you are as a believer and you have this underground ministry. It's an illegal ministry of protecting these babies. You have you have uh, you're you you have places to put them places how to conceal their birth. And you've got this whole elaborate scheme, maybe, but it's underground and it's it's against the law. And you're heading this thing up and you get called on the carpet for it. So what happens if you tell the truth? Well, most likely, we, we, we never know what happens, what, what would have happened. But most likely what would happen is you would die. All of your midwives who were in cahoots with you would die. And your ministry of saving baby boys just ended. And every baby boy who's a Hebrew born after that died. I, I would have lied to Pharaoh also. For the sake of those baby children, absolutely. And, I, and, and God agreed so God blessed them, treated them well, gave them families. Now, we're going to get to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is where we learn about the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments talks about deception. You shall not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor is what it literally says. So we'll talk about that in great detail when we get there. But I do not think these women broke that commandment. I do not. And I would do the same thing. And I hope you would do the same thing. I mean... If you were in a situation where you were in a context where uh, Christians are endangered by the government and the uh, government is going to come knocking on the door and checking to see if you're harboring any Christians, and first of all, are you a Christian? And if, if yes or no, are you harboring Christians? You should tell them no. I mean, if they ask if you're a Christian, that's a different conversation. But if they say, are you harboring Christians? Are you protecting God's people? Very weird for a pastor to say you should lie to him, right? But I think you should. I think you should. If you think about this context of what's going on, he's going to say later on, um, God is going to say in conversation uh, later on, and this is in your, by the way, this is in your study guide for your Connect Group homework that you should do and then show up to Connect Group to discuss this. There's a verse in there listed where God talks about, Israel is my firstborn son, talking to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. Because if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Is that fair? It puts it in a different plane. You're dealing with a, a power struggle between Pharaoh himself and God himself. Pharaoh has already placed himself directly in God's sights when he wanted to limit the numbers of people of, of Israel. When God told the people of Israel, I will multiply you and make you many great nations. 
I'm going to multiply you. That's the way I'm going to bless you. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. Bad news to stand on the opposite side of God on that one. And second of all, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let the people leave Egypt. Strike two. That's bad news. Pharaoh is, is placing himself in direct conflict with God himself. It's bad enough that he's, that he's doing these things to the people of Israel, that he's hurting them, that he's threatening them and whatnot. But he's in battle with God. And that's not a place you want to be. By the way, the Bible says that we, in our, the way we're born, apart from being Christians, we are actually God's enemy. We're not as powerful as Pharaoh. And people will remember our name, probably. They don't remember Pharaoh's, but they'll remember our name. But, but we are God's enemy, naturally, because of our sin. We were born at enmity with God. And that's not a good place to be. And some of you are still in that place of enmity with God. But God's not content with that. He didn't just leave it there. He he sent his son. That's why we talk about Jesus so much. Because that's the way you, an enemy of God, can become God's child. Is because he sent his son Jesus. To obey where you've disobeyed. To live a life of obedience where you've lived a life of disobedience. To go willingly to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin that you might be forgiven. This is what we talked about in Sunday school today. We talked about that great exchange that my guilt for what I have done has been put upon Jesus. And Jesus was punished for it. All of God's wrath dumped out upon Jesus. And what do I get? I get forgiveness of my sins. But more than that, I get His righteousness credited to my account so that I can stand before God righteous because of what Jesus has done. Not righteous because I've done some good stuff in my life. Not righteous because I've done more good stuff than bad stuff. That's probably not true. It wouldn't work anyway. Righteous before God because I stand in the righteousness of Christ. And all of that happens, John says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. When we receive him, when we accept him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Whereas we once were at enmity, we have the right to become children of God. That's the side I want to be on. And that's the side I want you to be on. By faith in Christ, you can be that. And you can, you can go from being God's enemy because of your sin. You can go to being his friend, his child because of Christ. So put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. That's the first important thing I want you to notice from this passage. The second one, did you notice how often the family comes up in this, in this chapter? I mean, let's, let's just work through it here real quickly and, and talk about how much the family is mentioned. Verse 7, the Israelites are multiplying beyond comprehension. Families. Lots of big families. Right? Verse 7. Verses 9 and 10, Pharaoh says he's afraid of them because they're getting too numerous, too many babies. So he's afraid, verses 9 and 10. He tries to work them too hard to have more children, verse 11. Verse 12 shows us that God kept multiplying them incredibly despite all of their hardship, despite all of Pharaoh's best efforts. So verse 12, the families are getting even bigger. Verse 16, Pharaoh orders the midwives to put to death all the baby boys and attack on the family. 
They don't do it. So in verse 21, God blesses the midwives. And how did he do it? He gave them families. The family is at the center of this whole thing. The family is what's at stake. The family is the way Pharaoh's attacking. And the family is the way God is blessing. Family's at the center of this whole thing. Remember the conversation in chapter 4 and verse 22 of Exodus between God and Pharaoh when he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is about God's family. Family is at stake. Pharaoh's getting into a fight that he's... uh, not going to enjoy how it ends. It's going to be bad for him and it's going to be bad for the nation that he represents. So, so much for plan B. Plan C. Pharaoh ups the ante a little bit. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, which probably doesn't mean every single Egyptian. It probably means like the people in charge, the authorities, the law enforcement, his cabinet minister, you know, whatever. It, It probably means his group of people who had some kind of power Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, it's interesting. I I don't understand Pharaoh exactly here because if, if you really wanted to limit multiplication, you would kill the daughters. They're the ones who have the babies. And, uh, but he never does that. He's going after the sons. And I think it's a a picture of his direct attack on God and God's people by going after God's son. That's a theme we see elsewhere in Scripture, right? Birth of Jesus. Who does Herod go after? All the baby boys, two years old and younger. And, of course, God's own son being the ultimate sacrifice, being literally his firstborn son who is offered for you who has offered for me. And, and I'm sure the enemy thought he was winning a very great victory when he finally had Jesus nailed to the cross. Little did he know. Little did he know that God had ultimately won the ultimate highest victory because our sins were piled on him. And we get forgiveness. And God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. So this, this battle is going to go on beyond Egypt. We're going to read about it for 39 more chapters going on here. And it goes on through the whole Bible. And it ultimately ends up with God winning at the expense of his own son. Pharaoh's plan A failed miserably and, and, and uh, plan B backfired on him too. And what about plan C? Well, that's going to lead us into chapter 2. Plan C is going to be what's in effect when, uh, when we get to chapter 2 and, and what all happens there. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with plan C. But plan C is uh, excommu- ex- uh, excuse me, execution command is broadened. The execution command is broadened. So plan A was, plan A was uh, the uh, forced labor, increased forced labor. Plan B was the midwives to execute boys. That didn't work out so well either. Plan C is the execution command is broadened. So we don't know how plan C works out yet. We'll get to that next week.
and we'll, that kind of sets the stage for what's going on. But you see a large, large battle that is, uh, that's going on here between God and Pharaoh. And that kind of brings us to our points of application here, things I want to think about. If you look at chapter 1 and you look at the context of the, the way Exodus is set up, this is a battle for the family. This is a battle for the family of God. Should it surprise us that the battle now is for the family? I mean, if you read the news, if you pay attention to, you know, what's going on in, in uh, any state in the union or around the world and things that are happening with gender and all kinds of stuff. I don't know how many genders you can select on Facebook now. I don't know why it's more than two, but it's 30. So I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I shouldn't even guess because it's way too many. It's beyond two. So it's way too many. Look what's happening to our family. Look what's happening to the battle on the family in our, in our world. It shouldn't surprise us that that's where the battle is. And, and I could go on and I could, I could talk about, you know, how bad things are, how difficult things are, or all the different kinds of attacks on the family. And there are many kinds of attacks on the family. I want to talk about how to fight that. How do we fight against that? Well, it starts with mom and dad. It starts with mom and dad. You would be amazed at the correlation of the... Um, if, if dad is a strong Christian, if he prays for his children and with his children, if he's honest before them about his own failings, about his own faith, dad... It's amazing how much impact that has on the children. It's amazing how much impact it has on the children if mom is a faithful Christian. If she loves the Lord and prays with her kids and prays for her kids. If she's honest with her kids. She has amazing power, amazing influence. But dad has the most. And so, so I'm a dad. Six times over. And, and uh, the, the weight, you know, I, I feel the weight. And you should feel the weight. This is my challenge to you men. That we need to pay attention to our families. We need to pay attention to what is impacting our families. It starts with the way my own heart, the way my own Christian life is impacting my family. Because even in a vacuum, if my own heart, my own Christian life is, is not as it ought to be, maybe I'm a hypocrite, maybe I will never confess that I've done something wrong to my kids, or whatever. Even in a vacuum, aside from the world, the flesh, and the devil attacking my family... I have huge influence right there, and I need to step up right there with my own walk with Christ. That's my challenge to you, dads. This is no joke. Your family is at stake. And just like in Exodus chapter 1 and through the next several chapters, the battle is for the family. The battle is for the family right now. So men, step up. Pray for your children. Pray with your children. Be honest and open with your kids. You know, I'm, I'm not the greatest Christian I wish I were a better Christian. The Lord's working in my life. I try to be open and honest with my kids about my failings and what I do with my failings. Not just, ah, I'm, I'm human. I blew it because I'm human. That was sin. I'm sorry. I want to do better. That's my challenge to you. The battle is still for the family. And I could go on about that. But, but all of chapter 1, as I, as I read through it, is almost the last time I read through it this week. It really struck me how often the family is at the center of what's going on here. And the family's at the center of what's going on now. We are still under attack. The family is still under attack. Your children are under attack. You are under attack. Your marriage is under attack. Your, your wife, your husband, under attack. Specifically in regard to your family. 
we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. And we need God to work in our families. The battle is still for the family. Another thing I want us to, to pull out and think about in our, in our passage right here is think about the people of Israel. And they've begun to suffer. They've begun to suffer very specifically. They're being worked like dogs. I mean, he, he, he's very clear when he says a couple of times in all their work, uh, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That, that phrase is repeated. They were worked like dogs, like I can't imagine. They were under attack. That wasn't good enough, so they started killing their firstborn son, or their, their sons, all the Hebrew boys. Had the midwives do it. Sneak in and do it quietly, probably, or, or whatever. Attacking their children. And then that doesn't work out, so he broadens the, the command to, uh, to include really anyone in authority. The police come and, you know, they hear a baby was born there, or whatever, and that's their job. To kill that firstborn baby. Kill that, that baby boy, that Hebrew boy. They were under attack. God's people were suffering. And where's God? Where's God in this? You see him multiplying them. You see that he gave them even more children. And they kept multiplying and kept spreading and kept filling the place. Right? Which only made the problem worse. Made Pharaoh mad. Right? God is blessing them in that way. But where's God? Where's God in this? We don't see yet. But think about chapter 2 and think about chapter 3 and the future chapters. What's going to happen? Does God hear? Is God aware of what's going on? Does he have something in the works? Boy, does he ever. Think about the fireworks that are about to come in a couple of chapters. Calls Moses, calls Aaron with him. They go and they become messengers. It leads into the plagues, right? Ultimately ends up with the death of Pharaoh's son and the people being driven out of the land. And they're free and they're on their own. God was there and he was present in chapter 1 in the midst of their suffering. He was there. And so where is God when his people suffer? He is right there. And what's he about to do? You don't know yet. We're afraid to answer the phone in the office because of who, who might be sick next. Who, who, might, who might be horribly sick next. We, we don't... God's people are suffering. God's people here are suffering. And where is God? He is right here. And we know what he's about to do in Exodus because you can turn the page. And you could keep reading. We don't know what he's going to do at Parkside. We don't have a page to turn. Trust in him. Trust in him. And you're going to see in chapter 2 the people cry out. Cry out to God, and he listens. He is there. That brings us to our third point. God rules despite appearances. Boy, this must have looked bad. This must have looked bad. When you look at the people of Israel, and they're expanding, they're exploding, they're, 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 and the more people there are, the harder their problems get. They get to work harder. Now their babies are being killed. Now there's a general decree that all their babies are going to be killed. And God was in charge. And he's in charge now. 
despite appearances, despite your cancer, despite the marital difficulties no one else knows about, despite the sin you're struggling with and really want to shake and have been been unable to to this point. He rules and he reigns right now. People you've been praying for to get saved, they don't know the Lord yet. He reigns. He rules. Children who are in difficult situations or who are living lives in rebellion or maybe they hate you or maybe you don't know where they are and God reigns. Sarah Heaton has run off to join Islam and their fight and God reigns. So that's my encouragement to you this morning from this passage. We don't see, I mean, we see blessings, right? We see blessings because the people keep growing and keep multiplying and keep spreading. God keeps blessing them. And the servants who step up and defy Pharaoh, what does God do? He blesses them and he blesses them with families. God is at work. Is that the way they were looking for it? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. I think they were looking for deliverance. I know they will be in a chapter or two. And God was at work. God was at work. And he's at work now. And if you will call upon him, if you will cry out to him, he will deliver you in his way and in his time. But he will deliver you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is deliverance. Maybe not in the timing you would like. Maybe not in exactly the way you would like. But God reigns. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. This is a, this is a heavy passage and it talks about very, very deep things and close to home, family. And the message is, God is all set. I mean, if you think about it in in terms of what's going to happen in the coming chapters, it's like God's winding up, right? Pretty soon we're going to meet Moses. Who's Moses? Well, he's the guy God sent to deliver him. That's good news. Good news is on the way. It's coming. And so in the difficulty where you find yourself right now, God will deliver in his way. And his way is best. Let's pray. Lord, you were working in that context in ways that I doubt the people understood. I doubt you were working in the ways they were specifically asking for, and yet you were working. And it is clear in this chapter how you have thwarted Pharaoh's plans again and again. And It wasn't the wisdom of the Hebrews. It wasn't their good planning. It wasn't their even politics that thwarted Pharaoh's plans. You, by your good hand, thwarted Pharaoh's plans. And you weren't done. The fight was just beginning. And so I take great comfort and I, I am encouraged by that fact. And I thank you that you got glory over Pharaoh, that you went to battle with him over firstborn sons and that you came out gloriously victorious. And I thank you, most of all, that you sent Jesus, your firstborn son, to make me an unworthy sinner, your child. 
I thank you for that. I thank you that you saved me, that you piled all my sin on him, and you gave me his righteousness. You punished my sin in him, and I get rewarded for his righteousness by faith in Christ. And so I pray that each one this morning would trust in Christ in that way, and and if they do already, that they would glorify him, that they would give him very great thanks and praise for that salvation. Lord, there are many of us who are uh, struggling through difficulties, who are suffering right now in different ways. Not exactly the way that the Hebrews were, but in different ways people are struggling. I pray that you would minister to them. I pray that you would show them your deliverance, your blessing, your favor in your way. I pray that you would work in their lives and give them patience to wait for you and give uh, give them hope in Christ. And so to that end, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.